The consensus today among child development scientists is that we now know that our kids are born good, not in sin. Most of the contemporary views about training and child discipline flow from this supposed fact. What do you believe about the condition of your child's soul? Let's join our study leader, Dave Wurtson, as he talks about this determinative issue. Life's a funny thing I'd share with you about the very night that uh, I was at the emergency room when Hans passed away. Right when I walked out of the hospital, that was the very time when my fourth granddaughter was born, Nora Elise Wurtson. It was born on that Monday night, and Mary took off. I took her to the airport early on Saturday. She was able to get up to Washington, D.C. She told me she flew just right across the National Cathedral could see Lincoln sitting in the Lincoln Memorial and turned right into Reagan Airport. And when I talked to her, she was holding Nora. But I want you to think, here's Jonathan and Leslie. They've got their second daughter, and they've got this little tiny baby. What is Nora's greatest problem? What are your kids' greatest problem? Our kids' greatest problem? Now, I want you to know that if you were down at the University of Texas and you were taking a course on parenting and the dynamics of child raising, you would be in a professor's class named George Holden, not William Holden, but George Holden. And he wrote a book back in 1997. In fact, it just outlines the whole field. And he begins the book by talking about where we used to get our information about parenting. And he talks about those dark days during the colonial period when our ministers, pastors like me, actually told us what was wrong with our kids. And Dr. Holden attacked one of the basic doctrines that the Puritans, which conjures up in modern communication, the big guys with the big broad brim, black hats and the black coats, and they're burning the witches at Salem and all that kind of stuff, And he shares how they taught this awful doctrine, which was called original sin. And what the Puritans actually believed is that little Nora was born with a propensity to turn away from God and to do evil, and that it was innate to her soul that she was born with it. Then he went on and described the fact that as we broke the hold of that, we turned to philosophers like John Locke was very instrumental in laying the foundation of our governmental philosophy. A lot of you might not know, but Locke also told us how to raise our kids. And he gave a lot of insight and he rejected the idea that children were born basically with a sinful heart. They were born just neutral and that we needed to train them and that we needed to, to teach them. And John Locke presented those kind of ideas. Holden also presented a French philosopher named Rousseau, and he talked about, in a book called A Meal, he told the story of of a child that's being raised, and basically Rousseau says that if we as parents will, will raise our children like you take care of a garden, and his basic picture is that there's a garden and that you just need to leave the garden alone and it will express itself. In other words, if you stay out of a meal's life and you, you just give them support, you give them comfort, you give them a good environment, and you don't mess them all up with all of your hang-ups and all of your problem, that a meal will grow up to be a really, really great child. I want you to know if you're a school teacher that Rousseau's ideas have strongly influenced a lot of the way you were educated and the way that you were taught about children. Basically, what I want you to begin to think about today, what do you believe about kids? Those are just some of the ideas. And then you move up into B.F. Skinner. He was a psychologist in the last generation. B.F. Skinner basically believed that you were just an animal of instinct. 
And he built on the experiment of the Russian psychologist that, that trained dogs to respond to stimuli, like if they rang a bell and fed them, that they would respond, and then you could ring the bell and not feed them, and they'd still respond. And basically, behaviorism taught that you're just an animal. We can move you through cause and effect. We give you an ad- adequate stimulus, you respond to the stimulus, and then there will be antecedents that flow from that. And that was a dominant idea that just permeated psychology. It's still very prevalent today. You live in a world today that makes basic assumptions about your children, and you listen to those assumptions. But one of the basic underlying statements of belief is that the idea that there's something wrong with us when we're born, that's gone. Let me just quote to you from Holden's book. He wrote this. He says, Only relatively recently has systematic research into child-rearing begun to inform our views about children and parents. Beliefs about children and parents, once the province of ministers, horrors, once the province of philosophers, and they got it all wrong too, according to his view, and physicians, remember Dr. Spock and all of his information, now are based on research findings. I want you to think about the power in that statement. What Holden is saying is, that when we used to listen to ministers, they didn't really have the facts. When we used to listen to philosophers, they don't really know what they're talking about. But now we know what we're talking about because our findings are based upon research. In other words, we watch monkeys and we put a doll with a feeding milk source and we put one doll that's just hard wire and we make another feeding source that's warm and cuddly and make it so it's furry and stuff and gives warmth and stuff and then we analyze how the chimps react to it and find out that it's a lot better for a chimp if there's warmth in the person that gives them nurturing food versus a wire cold mesh and this is brilliant And I don't mean to put down psychology. Some of you are going to go into that field. Science works really, really good when you're looking at just like a beaker and you can put some organic chemicals in there and you can heat it up and you can control really the total environment. You can make it not a very complex system, kind of a simple system. Then you can do this again and again and again and you can keep controlling the variables. You can find out a lot about God's natural world when you apply the scientific method to the complexity of human existence, it's not nearly as powerful a tool. And you have to be really careful because you can just be exerting the power, the so-called power of science and the power of objectivity. Because one of the things that Holden concludes after presenting this marvelous new day of parental research, he makes this statement in his book. He says, for instance, we now know the basic fact that children are no longer considered innately sinful or corrupt as they were 350 years ago. We now know that, that Jonathan Edwards was wrong when he taught in New England that little babies were born with what we call original sin. Now, I don't want to get into the discussion. How would you ever know using the scientific method, making observations about children, how would you know what is sinful? How would you know what is bad? How would you know what is good? Because that is a spiritual and philosophical question, not a scientific question. Now, I don't want to raise that issue because he jumped 
spheres on me. He knocked the ministers, knocked the philosophers, but he automatically concluded that based upon his now present scientific research, which really has the goods, now we know that our kids are basically good and they're not basically sinful. Now, how did he even know what's good and what is bad? How did he know that? Because that's not a scientific question. That's a much deeper question. Somebody has to tell us what the standard is. Somebody has to tell us what's really good for us, what's really bad for us, and that leads us into a totally different realm of thinking. Science is good for a lot of things, but it's not really good when it comes to moral values and spiritual values and interpersonal values. If you're a school teacher here today, if you're a parent here today, I want you to start asking as you sit in the classroom, where are they getting this information from? Because when you're sitting at the University of Texas and there's 150 kids and introduction to childhood and dynamics of parenting and it sounds so erudite and stuff, you can easily feel like, well, man, what I learned at Midlothian Bible Church is so nutty. But I want you to be a person that sits in that environment and you don't get swept away by the thousands of other students that now think it's just idiotic to believe that maybe people weren't born basically good. So what I want to do this morning is I want to try to give you an outline of a picture of what our kids look like when they're born. And I want you to begin with, it, with some correction to some of the Puritan ideas, because I believe that we need to begin, when we talk about little Nora, not with the fact that she's this horrible creature that was born in sin, but I think we need to begin with what I've been stressing the last several weeks in our series on parenting. We need to begin that little Nora is born in the image of God. Turn to Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. Because as we think about you, and as we think about Nora, as we think about raising our kids, and as we think about our lives as parents, the Scripture teaches an incredibly wondrous thing about human beings. Rather than this being bad news, it is good news. B.F. Skinner taught you that you were just a cog in the wheel. You weren't any different from an organic compound. And he could study you, and he could manipulate you, and that you didn't have any control over that. Well, I've got good news for you. He was wrong. You're not just a bag of chemicals. You're not just a bag of forces that I can kind of direct in, in certain means. The Bible says in Genesis 1, and 27 that unlike the animals, a lot of modern psychology, if I understand its basic philosophy, is treating you just like you're an animal and you're a creature of instinct. Maybe you're not just an organic compound, but you are just a living animal. And so we can study chimps, and we can study dolphins, and then we can study you, and it's all in the same realm of existence. I want to share with you, i got good news for you. There's a major, major difference between Nora and a chimp. There's a major difference between you and a dolphin. You say, what's the difference? This incredible, wondrous reality that every human being, every little baby that's born on planet Earth, has been born in the image of God. Look what it says. Genesis 1:26. Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the livestock, over the earth and over all the creatures that move along the ground. When the Lord makes a counsel about something unlike a lot of us, he gets things done. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. One of the things I want every one of you moms and dads to understand about little babies that you hold in your arms, every child that's here, 
I want you to know one of the most incredible realities, one of the most incredible treasures that you possess is that you have been made in the image of God. You've been made in the likeness of God. What does that mean? Well, the word image, the word image is in, in Hebrew is the same word that we would use for a statue. Like all over the ancient Near East, a great king, like a pharaoh, when he conquered southern Israel, for example, came up with his army and conquered southern Israel, he would build a statue of himself. And the statue would look kind of like him. Or it would be a figurative representation of him. And there was a, a relationship between that statue and the king of Egypt. And the statue would be a symbol of his authority, of his rule, of his presence ruling over that area. In the context of Genesis 1, what it's saying is that you are like the statue representing the presence of the eternal king. And we know that God is spirit, so God doesn't have a physical form. God the Father and God the Spirit don't have physical form. God the Son does have bodily form. So even some of our physical way that we exist in the world relates to God the Son and represents him. Part of this idea of the statue, the image... It's you're the image. And all over the ancient Near East, they built images of their gods. They made them like animals. They made them like falcons. Down in Egypt, they made them like snakes. They made them like crocodiles. Uh, in Mesopotamia, they made them like lions, like with lion heads and the body, like the body of a lion and the head of a human being, all that kind of stuff, and wings and all that kind of a thing. The reason God attacked it so much is that you're supposed to be the image of God. He needs a living image. He needs a personal image because he says, let us make man. And all the way through Genesis chapter 1, you don't have just stone. You don't just have material. You have a being that's thinking, that's feeling, that's communicating, that is acting, that is making decisions and willing. One of the things about the God of the Bible, unlike almost all the different concepts of God, in the Bible, God jumps on the pages as a person, as the three persons, because he's carrying on conversations among the Trinity. And God the Holy Spirit hovers over the face of the waters. Right away in Genesis chapter 1, you have a God that is a person. And what he says is, I'm going to make a human living being that's going to be a person. The other word that's used in this context is the word image and likeness. And likeness just means that there's ways. If you look at the character of God, you look at the personality of God, if you look at what God believes about right and wrong, you reflect all of that to a degree in your being. That's what it means. Theologians have argued for the last 2,000, for thousands of years, even way back in the Old Testament, what does it mean for man to be men in the image of God? And I can just suggest a few things this morning just to kind of whet your appetite, but I want you to capture a great big picture in the idea that as God created you, as God created Nora, as God creates a little baby, that little baby, according to the scripture, is born stamped with the likeness of her creator, of his creator. Now, what are some of those things? We could talk about your personality. Unlike behaviorism, the Bible teaches that little Nora is not just a bag of forces that can be manipulated according to her environment, or she's not just determined by her genes. The scripture teaches that she's like the living God, that she can think, that she can feel, and that she can decide. She has what we call a personality. And as a personality develops, it will be totally unique. 
because God never makes one personality just like another personality. And it gives infinite worth. It's one of the great fundamental beliefs of our country. We are family with this belief that the individual is a unique person that deserves to be treated with dignity and never to be treated cheaply. And that belief was rooted in the fact that we used to believe that little children were born stamped in the image of God. So that as you're raising your little child, you need to be raising them knowing that they can think. We're going to be talking the next several weeks about how we teach our children and we try to help them to have right beliefs. Why do we do that? Because we're made in the image of God and they have that ability to think. Your little baby is going to have emotions almost from day one and those emotions grow more and more and more. The God of the heaven is an effective God. He's a God that responds to us in warmth and love as, as we sang to him today. He's a God that weeps with you as you're weeping. He's a God that laughs with you. And your little baby, as, as little Fiona now, you know, just a little, more than a year old now, as Fiona laughs and she giggles and her emotions come out. And as her eyes shine, even little Blythe that has Rett syndrome, she can't really talk. But as you, as you love her and say, Blythe, I love you so very much, her eyes light up. And one of the greatest gifts of heaven is when she laughs with you because she's made in the image of God. She has all that effective emotional side of her life. She also has decision-making. Our kids have decision-making. And they make decisions about what they're going to do. They make decisions about whether they will obey you or not. That's all part of the wonder of their personality. And every one of the kids that are here, every one of us as moms and dads, we need to be thinking together. The Word of God is revealing that our kids were born with that kind of an innate worth. Another part that's so amazing about human beings relates to what I talked about is that we do know bad and good. From the time that we're just little tiny babies as we begin to develop, we begin to understand that this is good, this is bad. This is evil, this is right. And on and on it goes. We have an innate sense of morality. With animals, animals don't have discussions about is lying right or is it wrong? Lions never debate, is it really wrong for us to sit and take out these weak antelope that have a broken leg on the edge of the herd? But we all do that. All this week, you've had discussions about, I wonder if that was right. I wonder if that's wrong. I wonder whether that's the right way to approach it, if it's, if it's good. What about the question of abortion? We have big questions about, about abortion, whether it's right, whether it's wrong. Why do we do all that? Because we're moral creatures. Another part of this image of God that's so important and Genesis is telling this story is that our little ones begin to have a, a sense of eternity. The scripture says that eternity is written on our hearts in the book of Ecclesiastes. That's part of the image of God in us. And so from the time that your kids are little bitty kids, they'll start having dialogue with God. In fact, there's a fellow named Bob Cole that teaches at Harvard University. He spent his whole life, he brings pieces of paper and crayons, and he talks to children all over the world. And one of his major research projects was to talk to children about God. And he found that whether it was in Rio de Janeiro, in a very poor area of Rio, or whether it was in the elite section of Cambridge, Massachusetts, he found out that God was speaking and interacting with children, little bitty children. And he interacts with the pictures they draw, the conversations they have. Where does all that come from? It comes from the fact that we are born spiritual. We're born personal. We're born moral with a sense of morality. We're born spiritual. This all enters into the way that we parent because that we're understanding that this little baby is made in the image of God and, and that it's very important for us to understand that the God of the universe is going to be working in the life of this child. 
and they have a heart that can respond to that great eternal God of the universe. All those things are part of the image of God. Creativity. The God of the universe right here in Genesis is creating the sun, the moon, the stars, creates beautiful oceans, creates beautiful lakes, produces a beautiful garden. So that you realize the scripture teaches that our little ones, because they're made in the image of God, are going to be creative. So that you give them those crayons and you let them hammer on wood and they do all those weird things that they do. Little children are just almost spontaneously creative. And so some of those things that you did learn when you're learning about teaching are very valid according to the word of God because children are creative. Why are they creative? Because the ultimate God of the universe is creative. So all that enters in. Part of what I want you to see is we need to begin, as we think about the biblical idea of our kids, the Bible begins with the fact that our kids are born in the image of God. You say, well, but Genesis 3 took place. Yes, Genesis 3 took place, but I want you to turn over to Genesis chapter 9 because one of the amazing things of our fall into sin is that it totally didn't destroy the image of God in us. Genesis chapter 9, the, the Lord is talking after the flood and he's talking with Noah about the new existence after the flood. And if you look at verse 8, it gives a command about whoever sheds blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. This is the right of government to be able to take a life. If a person murders somebody, the Lord is saying that there should be institutions of justice in place where that person that murdered that person will have to make it right in justice because their blood will be shed. There's a lot of debate about capital punishment, and this is the verse that's debated about. And we don't want to get into that this morning. But what I want you to see is that it says, for in the image of God has God made man. In Genesis 9, after the horrible judgment of the flood, after the horrible fall of man, in Genesis chapter 3, God is still saying that every human being is made in his image. And that's why their life needs to be respected. That's why they need to be treated with dignity and why we can never just treat them as something cheap. The same thing is true in James chapter 3. It talks about our tongue and it says that we curse human beings and then it says we shouldn't curse them because they're made in the image of God. So one of the very first things we think about what's wrong with our kids is I want to underscore in your life what's good with our kids. Every one of our kids is born stamped in the image of God. And they have that personality. They have that sense of morality that's going to be growing. They have that sense of spirituality. They have the sense of creativity. They have the sense of of wanting to be in community, in a social community of love, because God says, let us make man. The Trinity is an eternal circle of love. I could go on and on and on and talk about all the implications of thinking as a daddy or as a granddaddy as I hold another granddaughter in my arms of the incredible wonder of the fact that Nora is born in the image of God. But I also need to face the reality that something's gone wrong. And this is what the modern world doesn't like to admit. Something has gone wrong in the soul of us as human beings. And that's the fall of man. And the Bible says, if you looked at Genesis chapter 5, it says that Adam was, was made in the image of God. But look at Genesis chapter 5 as it talks about the birth of Adam's son, Seth. This, this is written account of Adam's line. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. 
So Adam was created initially in the garden being a likeness, being a representation of what God is. But look what it says. He created them male and female and blessed them. And when they were created, he called them man. When Adam had lived 130 years, he had a son in his own likeness. In his own image, he made him Seth. After Seth was born, Adam lived 800 years and had other sons and daughters. And altogether, Adam lived 930 years and then he died. Something has gone radically wrong. We talked about our children made in God's image and that gives them eternal value and incredible worth and it needs to color the way that we treat them. But if we're really going to be understanding of what's going on in the life of our kids, we also need to understand that they not only have the image of God, but they have the image of Adam. It's a very powerful idea in the scripture. And what this means is the scripture's teaching that your children are not basically born leaning towards the good and going to do the good. And if you get out of the way and you don't mess them up, they'll be fine. A lot of modern thinking about parenting relates to that. That you as a parent are the bad person. The environment's the bad person. If we just let these kids express the wonder, the wonder of their personality, then everything will be fine goes very much back to Rousseau. And by the way, Rousseau had several illegitimate children, not legitimate children, that wrote this marvelous book that's had so much determination on modern thinking of child raising. Rousseau put all of his kids in an orphanage where he knew they would probably die because they wouldn't be taken care of. So he couldn't even control himself. He never was a daddy to kids, never provided shelter. He did lead them to their own thing. He put them in an orphanage where their lives were threatened. You need to look at the sources. Look at who's telling you stuff. And what God is telling us in his word is the truth about our existence. He's saying that when Adam fell, that when Adam fell and then that God produced a child through Adam and Eve, that the next children that are born, like the very first one that was born, was Cain. And sin leaped into Cain's heart because of Adam's fall. And what did he do? He was jealous of his brother, and then he murdered his brother. And if you're going to be realistic as a parent, and if you're going to raise your kids in wisdom, you need to understand what their greatest problem is. And it's not you, and it's not the school, and it's not the tenement building they live in or the $350,000 house they live in. It's not because they're in Texas and not in California or not in the East. Or it's not because they're in the East or in the West and not in the marvelous, wonderful environment of Texas. The scripture is saying that when you look at your little child, that their biggest problem is the marred image of God. They are made in the likeness of Adam. If you turn to Psalm 51, David, when he committed sin with Bathsheba, and he's praying a prayer of repentance in in Psalm 51, David says, Lord, she was beautiful. She was taking a bath. Her husband was away, and she really needed help. And I was tired, and I was in my midlife crisis, and I was depressed, and I could not find enough Zelcor to take care of me. He didn't say all that. In Psalm 51, our culture would say David committed sin with Bathsheba because what can a man do when a woman's bathing naked? He can't help it. They need to change the bathing procedures in Jerusalem. 
And if we put up proper curtains and we build our houses differently, this will never happen again. That's the way our culture responds. That's what we did when George Rayfield got killed. If you read The Loss of Innocence, you'll find out that it's our fault. In fact, it was the church's fault because all we had in Midlothian was churches. And that's why the kids didn't have enough entertainment And that's why they took drugs, and that's why they took a George Rayfield out and shot him in the head. It's all our fault. That's what your culture says. You hear that constantly. I want you to think about it. It's all around. Whenever something bad happens, we blame the environment. We blame external forces. What does David do? Look what David says. It says in verse 4, Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight." so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. One of the ways to know that you're on the pathway to repentance when you sin is you stop blaming anyone except yourself. And as a parent, you're never going to be able to work with your kids until you realize that they're responsible for their actions. You have a lot of input in their life, and we're going to teach you about that input. You have a lot of responsibility. It's so important for them to see Christ in your life. And it's so important for them to have good teaching from God's word. And those are all really powerful things. But I want you to know that you need to realize that, that deep in a child's heart, they decide. There's a part of them and there's a part of you that leans downhill towards the bad and towards the evil. And when we accept the responsibility, I sinned because I'm a sinner. I did wrong because there's evil in my heart. As parents in the modern society, it's so important for us to understand. Look what David says. Truly, I was sinful at birth. Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. I want to see David is not saying that he was born in a sinful act because it's wrong to have sex. That's not what David's saying. What David's saying is not that sex was evil, but that the birth of another human being, because they're a son of Adam, Because they're a son of Adam, that birth means that they're born with a spiritual, moral propensity towards evil. It's just like as as I grow older, I become more and more like my dad. It's because my DNA wired me to be about five foot seven and three quarters, to have a loud voice that in restaurants blows through the auditorium, just like my dad's did, to have gray hair and to not lose my hair. I couldn't have control over any of that. It all came because it's wired in my DNA. I walk like my dad. I have square shoulders like my dad. And I have all that wired into me. Okay? That's true. The scripture is also teaching that we are wired morally and spiritually in things much deeper than DNA. And we are wired rebelling against God. Now, I want to ask you parents, do you think that that's really true? Think about your little one. They get to be about one year of age. What do they do to you? They throw food at you. They look at you. One of their very first words after Dada and Mama is no. (laughs) When I say to little Fiona, Fiona, don't touch She looks at me, and as soon as I look away, she touches. 
And you know what? It took a lot of education, a lot of training. We brought in skilled tutors to teach Fiona how when mom and dad say, don't touch Fiona, we had a teacher to get it just right, like every other human being, to reach out and get as close as she can. That's what original sin means. It's the truth. You guys never were taught to lie. And those of you that want to go into child psychology, don't just look at like chimps that are sucking on bottles off dolls. Go into real, teach promised land here. And you're going to find out that our marvelous Christian kids, little boy playing with a fire truck, his friend Jack wants to play with a fire truck, Jack goes over and says, could I please have your fire truck? It would be really nice for you to share. No, Jack goes over and just grabs it. And then his friend responds, pow! Isn't that really what happens? This whole idea of idyllic youth. And and remember Rousseau's thing about the garden? Those of you that garden, what happens to your garden when you let it do its own thing? That has to be the stupidest illustration I've ever heard in my life. Because any idiot knows you got to work like crazy to pull weeds out of your garden. you got to put the right dirt in your garden. you got to put the right plants. you got to work, 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 work. The idea of leaving a garden to itself, it becomes not a garden anymore. It becomes a wild jungle. And that's what God's Word is saying. It's saying that we become wild because we're born in sin. And we could go on and on. In Romans chapter 5, turn there. Romans 5, the Apostle Paul really, really nails this. And he does it in a marvelous way, but he also gives us great hope. Your kid's greatest problem, that's what I'm trying to get across to you this today, your kid's greatest problem is their sin. And you need to understand that it's not their environment. It's not because of you. I mean, it's not because of, of the wrong teaching that you've given. It's kind of because of you, because you brought them into the world, and you're a son and daughter of Adam and Eve, just like I am. And look what it says. It says in verse 12 of Romans 5, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men because all sinned. If you don't believe that what I'm telling you is true, then why do little babies die, and why do 40-year-olds die, and why do 80-year-olds die? We are all people that give very concrete evidence. We are fragile human beings under the curse of death. And the Scripture says that our death the fact that we die, it's connected with the fact that we're sons and daughters of Adam and Eve. It says, before the law was given, sin was in the world. What it's saying is people were dying. People were sinning before God gave the law of Moses in about 1400. But sin is not taken into account when there is no law. The idea is that God's going to judge fairly. So God's not going to judge people that live before Mount Sinai based upon the law. He'll judge them like Romans 2 tells us, based upon the conscience that they had. And the way that they responded to the witness of his spirit so you can trust God to do things fairly with all those that lived before Sinai and after Sinai and before this present world. Part of what Paul is saying is this idea that God is very fair. It's one of the great beliefs that I have that God's going to be just based upon his holy word. Will not the judge of all the earth do good? And Paul's given us a feel for that. But he also says that nevertheless, death reigned, even though the law of Moses wasn't here. People still died from the time of Adam until the time of Moses, even though they hadn't disobeyed a direct command. Like Adam disobeyed a direct command of God. 
The children of Israel disobeyed a direct command of God, verbally given by God. What Paul is saying, though, that this, this reality that the human heart is innately sinful is valid even when God hasn't given his law because people are still dying. Now, that's the bad news. The bad news I'm sharing with you, your kids, greatest problem is not their environment, it's not their education, it's not their physical you know, abilities or non-abilities. Every one of our kids, their greatest need is that they're born with a heart that rebels against God, that turns away from God, that wants to do its own thing and find fulfillment in what they do, that wants to believe that they can be their own little gods and find happiness in themselves, all that's going on in the human heart. But the good news is that we're born in the image of God, we fall and become the image of Adam, but finally, it says we can have the image of Christ created in us. But the gift, look at verse 15 as we close, but the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many die by the trespass of one, all of us die because of Adam's trespass, and we all sin like Adam did. But that's the, that's the bad part of the good news. The good news is how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many. Your parenting needs to be about realizing that you've got a little sinner in your house. No, I believe with all my heart that until a child reaches the age of accountability, that the Lord covers them. And none of us know when the age of accountability is. But your goal as a parent is that the great Savior Jesus wants to come into the life of every one of your kids. This is a personal thing. We don't want to just teach you how to teach the right things to your kids and how to use good learning theory. We want to do that, but that's not all we want to do. If you're sitting here today and say, well, I want my kids to get a good moral education, that's part of it, but we want them to get far more. As I close today, I want you to understand, from the time that your little babies are born into your home, there's a loving, incredible Savior that died on the cross for their sins and that rose again. And he's the only one in all, the, in all of reality that can cure their greatest problem, and it's sin. And what we want to do, one of the basic foundational things that we want to do as a parent with our children is we want them to be living in a culture that is totally connected with Jesus, a mom and dad that are totally connected with Jesus. A lot of you have the idea that it's getting a right content into the life of your kids. And it's not just that. It's not just a, a message. It's a living person of Jesus. Jesus the Savior that died for us and who rose again is here with us this morning. He's the one that teaches us the truth. As I listen to him through his spirit, he opens up what I've shared from his word today and that Holy Spirit will cause Jesus to speak to your hearts so you'll understand what your kids are really like, that they are made in the image of God, but it's been marred. You'll face the reality of their rebellion and their sinfulness, but you'll also have the Lord Jesus teach you the incredible, wondrous hope that in Jesus all can become alive. And that's what our church family needs to be about, totally caught up in living moment by moment by moment with Jesus. I want you to be really alert to people that are teaching you and what their foundational beliefs are and where they're getting their information so that you can evaluate it. And so our basic thrust, what I want to get across today, as I hold Nora in my arms, Nora is made in the image of God, but that image has been marred. So she's also made in the image of Adam, and she's under a death sentence. 
but she's also can be made in the image of his son. And John tells us that when he shall appear, we shall be like him. And what our whole parenting force and purpose needs to be is to help our kids to meet Jesus and then through the power of the Spirit to become more and more like him because that's where they're going to find life abundantly. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, I pray that you would use the teaching of your word today to help us to not believe the false ideas that are being told us about our identity, about what our problem is, about the source of evil. I pray, Lord, that we will let your word be our teacher. I pray that you would really help my brothers and sisters to not hear the idea of original sin and the fallen Adam as being just bad news. Help them to see that it's the truth. It's the way existence really is. It puts the source of evil where it needs to be in Satan and then in the rebellion of the human heart. But it also opens the door to the tremendous cure that Jesus can bring. I want to ask you, Lord, that your spirit would help the parents that heard what I shared today to really think hard about how this can impact the way that they deal with their kids day by day and help us to build on that in the coming weeks. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.